Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creation that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Well, can I encourage you, do keep um, your Bible open. It's going to be really important, particularly tonight. Um, before we come to pray, I don't feel you have to turn to it, but I want to read uh, just two or three verses from uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. It's a lovely passage where Solomon has taken over from King David as king. And just to help us in our thoughts tonight, let me just read a couple of verses. Uh, Solomon's speaking to God. Uh, God said, I'll give you whatever you want. And this is what Solomon, uh, Solomon says. Your ser- verse 8, your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. And this is Solomon's request. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And then it goes on to say, the Lord was pleased that Sol- Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but instead for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart. And in the New Testament, in the book of James, James declares, if anyone lacks wisdom, he can ask God, who will give generously without finding fault. So should we pray and ask for that same wisdom and discernment that Solomon asked God for as we come to have a look at some of Genesis 1 and 2 tonight? Heavenly Father, we all acknowledge that we lack wisdom. We all acknowledge that we need your help sometimes to understand difficult truths. So we come to you today, Lord, in humility, and we ask that you would open our eyes to see things in these great chapters of Genesis that perhaps we've never seen before. Please particularly, would you help us uh, in a time of Q&A and discussion later that we can help each other to learn? And please, most importantly, might we see how great you are 
from these incredible chapters of Genesis. And I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Great, well, uh, I'm really looking forward to um, week two of, of five weeks. Um, last week, as well as he helpfully said, um, we were looking at sort of a theological understanding of Genesis, particularly that question, who is God? This week, we're focusing more on the interpretive way. How can we best interpret or understand these chapters? And, and the two are pretty intricately linked, as we'll come to see. Um, Without doing this, we can tie ourselves in all sorts of knots. One of the knots we might tie ourselves in is to fail to focus on what the writer focuses on. And so much of the sort of discussion and opinion people have of these chapters is just that discussion and opinion, but is not often focusing on what the writer focuses on. And we looked at that a lot last week. So that's one mistake we want to try and avoid. Um, The other one mistake we can make is is forcing this text, or indeed any text in the Bible, to speak on issues uh, where it's silent. Uh, every passage is meant to be teaching us something, but won't be an answer to every question we have. And we need to allow a passage to focus and speak to us what God wants us to hear from it, but not to impose on it our own understanding. Um, And the third little danger is that we can have a sort of external framework here, either something we've read elsewhere in the Bible or something we read in the book. And this sort of forms a worldview or a way of understanding. And then we come to a passage in the Bible and kind of superimpose these structures that we have here onto a text to make it say what we want it to say rather than allowing God to speak plainly. Now, these are really simple kind of tools for interpreting the Bible faithfully. Um, but we need to be careful of them. But as you see on the screen, these are some of the questions we're going to look at tonight, or the four questions we're going to look at tonight. Uh, we're going to spend a bit of time going through one, two, and three, and then there'll be a chance just to ask some questions. Um, uh, and uh, just be two or three people up here, and uh, we can uh, throw some ideas around, and it'd be great for you all to contribute if you feel led to. Um, and it's always good to ask questions and think these things through. And then I'll just try and pull things together for a couple of minutes at the end, um, just to encourage us. So the first one we're going to look at tonight, um, should we read Genesis 1 literally? First of all, it's worth pointing out there's always a danger with our understanding of this word uh, literal. Um, If anyone knows, you will know what a metaphor is. A metaphor is a way of comparing two things that are different but have similarities. And often Bible writers will use metaphors to help us to understand a deeper truth that can't just be conveyed by writing kind of normal prose. So here's an example. Um, say you're a husband and you're leaving the house and your wife shouts down the stairs, I'll be ready in a minute. <laughs> or maybe it works the other way. It depends how your family works. Of course, when that is shouted down the stairs, that person's not speaking about a literalistic 60 seconds because if you were a husband and you started counting 54, 55, 56, you'd probably get her barking down the stairs very loudly at you. It wouldn't be appropriate. So we use that phrase, I'll be ready in a minute, to try and indicate something, but we're not specifically speaking about 60 seconds. So we get that, right? Now here's another example. Someone might say, um, I was in such a rush that I was flying down the street. Now, are they professing to be Superman? Probably not. More likely that they were running very fast, and the idea of flying just helps us to kind of get an impression of of the speed at which a person is moving. Uh, Here's an example, um, and Neil spoke about it this morning, something from the Bible. Jesus says, I am the door. There was no background in the music when he said that. I'll try and plow on. I am the door. 
Now, Jesus, of course, is not saying he's made of metal or made of wool or made of plastic, is he? Because we understand what a physical door is. You can see some of them over there. Jesus is not saying he's one of those. But it is a metaphor for something that is real. Jesus isn't just saying he represents a door. He is a door, but not in that sense that it is a door. He's a door in the sense that you'll know the famous words of Jesus in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is a door, but he's not that kind of a door. And here's one last example. Go to Genesis chapter 1. We had a little discussion about this last week. um, Where at the beginning of every day of creation, God said... Um, there's this expression and God said and we had a great discussion from a question in the balcony last week how are we to understand uh, God speaking here was it physical lips well we know that God is spirit God only inhabited human flesh speaking like I did through the person of his son so it's probably not meaning God literally spoke and we discussed probably it means that God is breathing his creative spirit out over remember the the chaos and the darkness to create stability and light. So again, and God said, isn't probably speaking about him literally speaking like I'm speaking. It's probably more speaking of him breathing a creative spirit over the darkness and the void and bringing forth light. So we need to be a little bit careful about how we use that word literal. Because something can be a metaphor but also be real through what it's representing and through what it's indicating. So that's just one thing for us to think about. And perhaps we can come back and uh, push that a bit further with some questions later on. Here's a second question which will come up on the screen. Uh, Was the world created in six periods of 24 hours? Now, we'll have a whole range of understandings on this, and my aim in trying to help us to understand uh, the answer to this question isn't to persuade people. um, We have to make our own minds up on this. I think it's important to sort of engage really carefully. But let's have a little think about this. Uh, Just in Genesis chapter 1... And just into chapter 2, the word day that the writer uses has four different meanings. And they're all literal. So let's work through some examples. If you've got a Bible there, it'd be really helpful for you to find these. Then you can see the verse in the context. But some of the verses will come on the screen. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 5, and the first half of it. It says there, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So here, the writer is distinguishing between darkness and light and does it with day and night. So here, day clearly can't mean 24 hours. It's probably here, meaning more like 12 hours. That doesn't make sense, okay? Second example, have a look at the second half of the verse. Chapter 1, verse 5, second half. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Well, you take evening and morning, that speaks much more of probably a 24-hour period, maybe. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Every day, as we know it, has a morning and has an evening. We get up in the morning, we go to sleep in the evening. So day, clearly, even in one verse, probably has two different meanings. Um, Go into chapter 2. By the seventh day, God rested, uh, sorry, God finished the work that he had been doing. The interesting thing here is there's no indication at all about how long this day was. The day seems to have no end. Do you notice that? 
there was a beginning and there was an end to each of the days of creation. But this day, there seemed to be no end. And that's interesting because you read in the New Testament when the author of the writer to the Hebrews picks this up. In Hebrews chapter 4, he speaks about this. And he speaks about the idea of rest being an ongoing thing. So it's probably quite interesting how here the writers deliberately use day in a sense of not necessarily a defined period of time, 12 hours, 24 hours, but maybe just a much longer period. Because the writer in the New Testament talks about day being an ongoing thing. The rest that God gives us through Jesus is ongoing. So there are just three little examples. Here's the last one. Chapter 2, verse 4. When God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Now, I'm not a scholar, but I'm told that that word there, when, which is in our Bibles, literally means in the day of. So the writer's not telling us when, as in at five past four on a Monday morning, God did this. When is an expression of in the day. So in the day when God created. The writer doesn't seem to be drawing much attention to when that exactly was. He's just making an expression. In the day the world was created, dot, dot, dot. So there's just a few indications that we've got to be a bit careful to simply read a word day and think, ah, oh, well, I know day as 24, therefore it must mean 24. We'll come on to it a little bit more in a moment. Another interesting thing, I don't want to get really technical with this. If you kind of get lost in the detail, just think about the main point through this. But in our Bibles, you get what's called a definitive article, the word the. In our Bibles, it says the first day, the second day, the third day. Interestingly, and again, this is what I've been told, the first four days in the original, there's no the. It should actually read a first day, a second day, a third day, which is quite interesting. But there's a change in day five and day six where there is the use of the word the, the fifth day, the sixth day. Now, this could perhaps be an indication that the days one, two, three, four were just periods of time, and the writer is not trying to button up exactly what these periods of time were. But perhaps he's wanting to draw a bit more attention to the fifth and the sixth day. Maybe because he wants us to be clear that there was a day when he created man, which may help us with some of our debates about was man just the product of evolution. The Bible says, no, God created man. And perhaps there was the day. And that's why the writer uses the word the there, but didn't in the other days. I don't know. Equally, on day seven, there's the word the, the seventh day. And here he's speaking about stopping from the work that he had done. Perhaps because he wanted clarity that there was this period of the world coming into being. And then there was a definitive time where God stopped creating and he started resting. Now, we don't want to read too much into that necessarily, but we have to ask the question, why does the writer not just use the every time? Or, and why does he specifically choose to use it for two days and not the other four? Maybe it's an indication to us that we don't necessarily have to understand the days as literal 24-hour periods. Now, if you hold to what's called a young earth, which would mean that the, the earth's very, very young, the whole people who hold this view would say that the whole geological um, fossil record was all the products of a flood of course we want to say and I would stand with you on this uh, we want to uphold that God can do anything of course God could create the world in six lots of 24 hours of course he could he could have done it in one second so we're not refuting that of course we want to uphold scripture before science I'm going to see hope, hope to help us to see next week the two aren't incompatible But if there's ever a time where scripture speaks and science says something 
and they contradict each other. Science must be wrong because God does not lie. You can read that in Titus chapter 1. Uh, and of course, some people who hold to this young earth, they, the, the main reason behind it is this very honorable desire to want to uphold the truth of Scripture. And that's a really positive thing. All I'm simply saying is to hold a kind of simplistic view in, of, of creation. And I don't use that word simplistic in a derogatory sense. Simplistic in the sense of it says day, and I believe it therefore is a day. To hold that view, all I'm saying is that I don't necessarily believe that's the only biblically faithful way of reading Genesis. And I think we've got to be careful to not impose a very simple framework on what's clearly a very complex couple of chapters. There's a lot more depth to these chapters than perhaps we realized. But we can come back to that again during some periods of questions. But here's more important. If, if, that, if you got lost in all that, here's the really big question. Does it really matter? Now, some would say, yes, it does matter because it's the authority of Scripture we're upholding here. Uh, if you read scholars, uh, good scholars like people like Ken Ham, this is one of the big things that he'll stress. We want to uphold the scriptures. And if it says this is how God did it, he said it. But I, I would just simply say, hold that intention with the fact that there's a lot more to a word day, for instance, than just what we might think. But to ask that question, does it really matter? Interestingly, sometimes when you get something that's a problem in the Old Testament, it's always worth going to the New and saying, how do the New Testament writers deal with this? Do they draw attention to it? As far as I'm aware, there's no place in the New Testament that speaks of the days of creation, specifically. But what does the New Testament do? Well, you might know Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, where the writer says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. So here the New Testament writer is helping us understand the Old Testament because what he's doing is saying, this is the one thing that I want you to grasp. And if you were here last week, this was the thing we were stressing. What is the writer drawing our attention to? He's not actually drawing our attention to the days. He's drawing our attention to the God behind the days. So wherever we fall on this debate, and it's not one to fall out on because either way it would be a faithful reading of the text, the bigger question to look at is what do we learn about God? I think one of the really helpful principles that we can apply any time we look at the Bible, and maybe you can talk about this in home groups, is always try to affirm what the Bible affirms without getting lost in detail where the Bible is not necessarily speaking. The Bible does say that God has given us his word for all we need for life and godliness. God didn't give us his word to give us every answer to every possible question we might ever have. So we need to allow God's word to speak in the way it was intended, but not to force it to speak in other ways. Well, hold your questions, because I'm sure there'll be some good ones coming back. And if they're difficult, then I'll ask one of my friends to answer them. Here's the third one that we're going to look at together. Uh, aren't there contradictions within Genesis 1 and 2? They might say, why are you telling us that there are contradictions and pointing that out? Isn't that slightly undermining? Actually, there aren't contradictions at all. It's just the way that we understand them. I'm going to give us three examples, and you can throw this around, see what you make of it. Just go back one slide. There we go. Was there light before there was sun? Have a look down at your Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 14 says that God created lights to mark the seasons, dates, and years. And then verse 15, it says, God made two great lights, one to govern the day and one to govern the light. Now, what were these lights? Any ideas? It's not a trick question. Sun and the moon. 
pretty simple, okay? And yet, look back at chapter 1, verse 3. God had already created light before he created the sun. So what do we do with that? Well, there are different interpretations. Some people would argue God was the source of light. And later, he kind of appointed the sun, which he later created, to take over that role that he first had. Uh, People who who take this view would, would go to a place like Revelation chapter 22, where there's a great description of heaven, and it's talking about God's people in heaven. They will not need the light of the sun, for God will give them light. Verses like that. So it's possible that God was the source of light, and later he created the sun to take over that role of bringing light. But there's another possibility. The other possibility is maybe Genesis 1 is not necessarily chronological. Maybe Genesis 1 is trying to stress instead there is design in creation. There is order in creation. God is behind creation. These are the big things that Genesis 1 wants to stress, not necessarily chronology. We'll come to that again. Uh, Let's have a think of a, a second one. Uh, Was there vegetation before there was weather? We all know that it's the weather systems that drive growth in biology. But was there vegetation before weather? Have a look at chapter 1, verse 11. On the third day, what did God create? Vegetation. But there was no sun. There was no moon. There was no weather. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 5. We see that vegetation comes after the rain which would follow a kind of natural order as we would understand biology today. So there seems to be a bit of a contradiction. Perhaps you're thinking, well, maybe there's just two writers. One guy writes Genesis 1, one guy writes Genesis 2, and some idiot slops them two together, and there's a blatant contradiction. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. In fact, I know so. Instead, here's another possibility. Maybe Genesis 1 is kind of stylized poetry. Remember this little diagram we looked at last week? We, we notice that day one, two, and three is where God sort of created stuff. And day four, five, and six, he filled that stuff, the kind of form and then the filling. Now, one of the points we made looking at this little diagram is there's clearly design in creation. There's clearly order in creation. Well, as you read through Genesis 1, there's a lot of repetition, isn't there, with the phrases like, and God said, on the first day, on the second. It kind of reads a bit like a poem, doesn't it, where there's repetition, a bit like a song. And perhaps this is creation singing of its creator, rather like uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. So maybe this is, if Moses is the writer of the Pentateuch, maybe this is Moses who's helping us through this song to understand that there is a God of creation before he's trying to help us to understand the detail of how that creation came into being. And that would square with what we looked at last week, wouldn't it? The big stress in Genesis 1 is that God created. We'll see what you make of that. It's perfectly possible that um, Moses played with the chronology. If you're thinking, but that just makes sense, that just feels a bit dodgy to me. Uh, Writers in the Bible often do play with chronology to make a theological point. Uh, We could look at this if if you particularly want to in maybe some of the questions. But in John's Gospel, John is arranged thematically. It's very different to what's called the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes John places a story which all the other Gospels places at the end of the Gospel. John puts it right at the beginning. 
Well, maybe it's because this story happened twice. Maybe because John just got mistaken. Or maybe he's trying to make a point. So he takes a story that happened then and he puts it here to make a theological point. Not manipulating what happened, but using the stories to make a deeper point. And we can think about that. But it's not abusing the text to change the chronology. What it's doing is, is making a point. And all the writers of Scripture were inspired by God. So perhaps this is what he was doing. Again, you think of that little diagram. Look at day three and day six. If, if you take them as sort of two sets of three, the, the kind of uh, focus and the pinnacle of day three, the first three days, is the creation of vegetation. And the pinnacle of creation of day six was mankind. Well, in the ancient Near East, it was vegetation and mankind that were symbols of fertility. So perhaps here the writer is drawing attention to day three and day six to do exactly that, playing with the chronology, but to say, this is what everyone else understood to be um, symbols of the pinnacles of creation. That's why I placed them strategically in these two places. But you compare Genesis 1 with Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, it's very different. You get lots of uh, historical facts. You get lots of names, if you notice, of places. Lots of details, things that seem more to follow a natural order. So maybe there's contradiction, but it seems far more probable, at least to me, that actually chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2 have very different emphases. And if you're really struggling with that, ask yourself the question, why are there then two accounts of creation? Why not just one? Perhaps it's because God in his wisdom is trying to say different things to us through these two complementary accounts. They're not meant to contradict each other if we understand the style of writing. Third little example. Uh, was man created before or after the plants? Have a look at Genesis 1.11. There was vegetation. And then have a look at Genesis 1, verse 26. Later, God creates mankind. Well, this causes a bit of a problem when you get to chapter 2. Because if you notice, chapter 2, verse 5, stresses there was no vegetation. And then mankind was created in chapter 2, verse 7. And later, the trees were created in chapter 2, verse 9. Well, is that a contradiction? Or is, again, this helping us to see that there are very different emphases in Genesis 1 to Genesis 2? Just to help you with that, one final little question, uh, one final little diagram that may help you with this before we have some questions. The diagram on the left on the screen is perhaps one helpful way to understand Genesis 1, and the diagram on the right, a helpful way maybe to understand Genesis 2. Why? In Genesis 1, the writer wants to stress that man is the pinnacle of creation. Uh, Can someone tell me what other clues you get in Genesis 1 as to how mankind is different to everything else that's been created? Kathy? Great. And what's the little expression after each day of creation? It was good. When God created man in his own image, it was very good. So there's something very distinct about God making us in his image. And we'll look at this week four. But that little diagram there represents that in all that God created, it was driving forward to a specific point, the creation of man in God's image. So mankind is the pinnacle of creation. But you go into Genesis chapter 2, rather than focusing on mankind being the pinnacle of creation, there's all these different creative acts and finally mankind. Genesis 2 has more of a picture of mankind being at the center 
of God's world. And Genesis 2 is all about relationships, isn't it? Adam's relationship with his wife Eve. Adam's relationship with the earth that God created. Adam's relationship with God who created him. So the different emphases, the two chapters aren't contradicting each other. They're trying to draw out different things. The first chapter, God is saying, of all that I made, mankind is the most special, made in my image. Chapter two is saying, and in all that I made, God was placed at the center of the garden to look after it and care for it. It's a chapter much more about relationships. There's loads there, and I appreciate that. Some of it might have washed over your head. But there might be questions, and I think it would be really nice to hear from each other. We can help each other learn. Perhaps you've read something somewhere that's particularly helpful. Maybe there's something that I've missed that you can help me with. But what would be great is I'm going to ask Neil to come up and just chair a bit of this. Um, have a bit of time now, because we've got plenty of time, for just a bit of discussion, a bit of uh, Q&A. And then towards the end, when we feel we're sort of running out of steam or it's a helpful time, I'm just going to pull us back together for two or three minutes to try and um, just centre us back on Genesis 1 and 2. Um, so why don't you take a, a moment just to sort of digest some of that. And Neil will come up, and uh, when he feels ready, then um, we'll take some questions. Um, do you know, what's interesting for me when we, um, when we have these sort of discussions is that what we're seeing here is, and they're really helpful questions and comments from everyone, and I thank you for them. What we're seeing here is that God is infinite, and you and I are not. We're trying to understand faithfully. We're trying to handle his word carefully because it really matters, to take John's point, that we handle God's word faithfully. It really does. But I think what one of the things that we're seeing is that you and I are finite, and we're grappling with truths, we're learning, we're reading, we're thinking together, but we don't have all understanding. And so I just want to um, bring together some of the things we've thought about. There's, could you just put the last PowerPoint up for us? And just uh, three things that I think we should take away. Because some of you will be really stimulated by all this stuff. And you'll be asking loads of questions and you love this. Others of you, it's just washing over your head and you're just getting really confused and a bit frustrated. Uh, here are th- three things that I hope will help us um, just as we continue thinking about Genesis 1 and t- 2 together. The first one there... Uh, I suggest it's worth trying to establish the overall purpose of a passage before you seek to understand the detail of its meaning. In other words, look for clues as to why the writer is writing. And of course, John, you make the helpful point. This isn't sort of a guessing game. We're kind of like, oh, I wonder what the writer's thinking. Well, I think the writer's thinking this. Therefore, the passage means this. Loads of people do that. It's called liberal theology. You just take a view that you have and then you make the text say what you want it to say. And you could do that with almost any part of scripture. It's really dangerous. What I mean by trying to understand the purpose is particularly, and this is the word I always bang on about it, but I think it's for a reason. Look at the context. What has come just before? What comes just after? What's in the slightly bigger context? Because that is the single biggest tool anyone could ever have for understanding what does this particular text mean? And look as well for emphasis. What is the writer emphasizing? What do they seem to be drawing your attention to? And what are they not drawing your attention to? Because that's deliberate. So try and establish the purpose of a text. And it's always worth asking that um, before you seek to delve into the meaning. I'll give you one little example. Someone mentioned Revelation. Um, really helpful. A revelation is, most of Revelation is what's called apocalyptic language. It, uh, the, apocaly- uh, the word apocalypse literally means to, to pull back, like you would pull back the curtains in the morning to reveal the sunshine. Well, that style of literature is not meant to be read by examining intricate details, as if when you get these weird and wonderful descriptions, you're meant to kind of try and draw a picture. 
It's not designed to do that. What it's trying to say is some of the things that the writer is trying to convey are just too big and too wonderful for human words to be able to explain. So I'm going to paint a picture that's going to move your senses so that you begin to understand a bit of the truth. You get into all sorts of problems with Revelation if you try and get stuck into all the detail and try and interpret every fine detail. Because the writer's saying it's not about that. It's about standing back, pulling back the curtains. What's the big thing? So try and establish the purpose before you get to the meaning. Um, I think that's helpful. Second thing, I've already said this, but try and affirm what the text affirms. Uh, It's really good to have loads of questions about science and evolution and and the rest of it. And it's great to come and keep debating and thinking about these things because it's stimulating our minds. It's allowing God's work to speak to us. But the thing at the end of the day is we have these great discussions, but come back to affirming what does Genesis 1 and 2 affirm? There'll be hundreds of unanswered questions. And the more you read and the more you think, the more questions you'll have. But God is God and you and I are not. And so that's just part of being a human. And it's a frustration of being human, but it's a good frustration. Because the second I think I'm God and I know it all, I'm in real trouble. Uh, And then the third thing there is, uh, I guess tied up, uh, be prepared not to tie up every loose end. That's not a cop-out saying, well, we just don't understand, therefore we'll just believe blindly. But remember the words of Francis Schaeffer that I drew our attention to last week? Uh, Try and understand the difference between true knowledge and exhaustive knowledge. Every one of us, whether you're a real brain or you see things really simply, you have true knowledge of God because the knowledge of God that God reveals of himself in his word is true. But it's not and it never will be exhaustive knowledge. We can never understand everything about God, but it doesn't mean that we can't know him truly. And I really want you to hear that really clearly because if you're a a sort of scholarly mind that wants to keep debating these things forever and you're going to throw loads of books our way and we're going to keep thinking about it, that's great. But if you've got a mind that says, I just don't want to do that, I'm not interested, the big thing that matters is that you have true knowledge of God, even if it's not exhaustive. And I think that's one of the things that keeps you humble and I pray will continue to help you to try and understand him better day by day. Well, next week we're going to come and uh, look at... The issue of, is sort of science and faith incompatible? It's a particularly big question a lot of people have. We're not going to get really bogged down in detail of debates about evolution and things. I'm going to try and give us just a a very sort of brief and simple, really simple overview of kind of history of how people have approached this, but more to help us to see that what we've been stressing in week one and two, what Genesis one and two is trying to do is not the same as what a science textbook does. And so many of the debates that you'll read and the confusions we get over these debates are because we misread the purpose for which Genesis 1 and 2 were written. Um, So do come back next week, and um, I hope and pray this has been helpful. Um, I'd love to keep chatting with you about it, um, because I'm learning tons too through doing this. And uh, uh, I'm going to hand back to Wellesley now as he closes our service. Thank you very much.